And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Matthew chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Please be seated. This rather famous episode in Jesus' ministry, told in each of the three synoptic gospels and always placed after he entered Jerusalem for the last time before his death, can also be one of the hardest to understand, especially in the context of our modern world. The traditional interpretation holds that Christians are to follow the laws of the land, including paying tribute and taxes to the rightful authorities granted power by the will of God. Further interpretation reveals the truth set out by Jesus in his witness to Pontius Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. In a limited fashion, the foundation of the later doctrine of separation of church and state can also be seen from this teaching. However, I must stress that the current understanding of this separation would likely have given the church fathers pause. The church fathers see this, rule, see this teaching as ruling out competing allegiances to show that duty to the church does not remove one's duty to earthly powers with one crucial caveat. St. John Chrysostom says, but when you hear this command to render to Caesar the things of Caesar, know that such things only are intended which in nothing are opposed to religion. If such there be, it is no longer Caesar's but the devil's tribute. In other words, if ever allegiance to the state requires the Christian to sin, then our allegiance to the church must take primacy, lest we have a hand in the devil's tribute. This echoes what Peter says in Acts that we must obey God rather than men. On the practical and immediate item of taxes, the church fathers found this passage to support the payment of taxes by Christians. St. Jerome says in his first apology, and everywhere we, more readily than all men, endeavor to pay to those appointed by you, that is the current emperor in Jerome's day, the taxes both ordinary and extraordinary, as we have been taught by him. And then he proceeds to quote from Luke's account of this episode. Interestingly, Hilary of Poitiers offers this insight into the matter. If we lean upon what is his, that is Caesar's, if we avail ourselves of the lawful protection of his power, we cannot complain of it as any wrong if we are required to render to Caesar the things of Caesar. To my ear, the words of Christ are plain, and the witness of the historic faith is unified. The kingdom of God is not the same as the kingdoms of the earth. The things of the earth are given to the kingdoms of the earth for their temporal rule. And yet, the kingdom of God maintains supremacy in all things. However, as with much in these evil days, the traditional interpretation has been questioned. And what the forerunners of our faith held to be clear and obvious teachings from our Lord 
have been fogged by confusion and doubt. It is my chief hope that God uses this sermon to begin to dispel some of this fog around what I, with the fathers, believe to be a direct and unambiguous teaching from our Lord Jesus. In my adult life as a Christian in America, who has taken an interest in politics, for who cannot, it seems to me that there is no more well-known passage which has been used to justify all manner of political positions which seem to be at clear odds with the plain words and example of the gospel. Everything from tax evasion and resistance to silence and complicity with official injustice and oppression. In recent days, it seems like render unto Caesar is used by some to dismiss any witness of the church which is critical to the preferred politics of select members of the body of believers. The constant theme I see in all these attempts to make the words of Jesus say what they do not say is a misplaced emphasis on the first part of the sentence. We are too hung up on what does it mean to render unto Caesar. It is my contention that you cannot understand what Jesus means by render unto Caesar until you understand what he means by render unto God. While our hearts are more concerned about wheedling and haggling over what and how much to give to the earthly powers, we will never understand the fullness behind what Jesus says. We will also never fully appreciate this teaching in the way even those who tried to entrap him did. Pay taxes to Caesar is in and of itself not that astonishing, just as much as don't pay taxes to Caesar would not have been. So what does it mean to render unto God and what and how much should we give? It will probably come as no surprise that part of my writing process for sermon prep includes, at minimum, an initial read through all the appointed, the appointed lectionary passages for a Sunday. This is less to decide which passages to preach on and more to determine what theme the lectionary and therefore the church has in mind to teach us for that Sunday. This week, the lectionary pairs this gospel reading with a reading from the prophet Malachi. From that reading, we hear a charge of wrongdoing, that the whole house of Israel is robbing God and the failure to pay tithes and contributions. Malachi goes on to tell Israel that God, tells, God calls them to put him to the test, to see if God will not give them an abundance if they bring the full tithe into the temple. Jesus tells the Pharisees and all others for whom the tribute was a burning single issue that they are still failing the test God allows to be placed against them, that by being more concerned with how to hold onto their wealth and keep it from going to a foreign power, they show themselves as being fixated on the things of the world rather than on God. Since they will not give to God what is owed to him, then God allows the oppressive power of the Romans to continue to plague Israel with taxes and harsh treatments. I do not know whether the Pharisees paid or taught payment of the literal tithe. I assume they did, since fundamental adherence to the Torah was of paramount concern to them. I do know that Jesus often charged them with stopping short of the full understanding of the law, despite their observation of the letter of the law. 
Jesus' inclusion of render to God the things that are God's in this teaching reads to me as another indictment in this vein. The Pharisees aren't giving to God what belongs to him, and that is why they are concerned more about what and how much to give to Caesar. One detail that you may miss from a quick reading of the Gospel account is that Jesus asks for the coin for the tribute. He does not have one on him. While we could read much into the question of who gave him the coin and infer some further wickedness and hypocrisy on the part of those giving Je putting Jesus to the test, I think it is far more profitable to focus on the simple fact of Jesus not having the coin himself. When I first read the quote from Hilary of Poitiers earlier, it recalled this detail of the story for me. And I am more and more convinced that this is the core truth of the teaching from which all viable interpretation and application flows. Jesus is that man whom Hillary hypothesizes who gave everything to God such that he had scarcely anything for Caesar to demand of him. Indeed, the only thing he had which Caesar could successfully require of him was only taken by wickedness and treachery. Of course, I mean his body, which was crucified on a Roman cross at Pilate's command. Jesus did not have the coin on him because so far as we see in the witness of any of the gospels, he had no money on him whatsoever. He got no benefit from the Roman economy, nor personal assistance, nor special protection, nor any other favor from Caesar or Pilate, Caesar's agent in Palestine. Of the other Caesars, in Jesus' life, we know that he similarly received nothing more than curiosity and benign indifference from them. He rendered to God all that was God's and had nothing left that Caesar or any other earthly power could demand of him by moral or legal right. One final detail about this lesson, and then I will turn to applying render unto God to America in 2020, approaching a general election season. What is it about the coin that makes Jesus say that it belongs to Caesar? Is it not Caesar's image stamped on the coin? In telling the Pharisees and the Herodians to give the coin and other similar tributes to Caesar, owing to the fact that his image proclaimed his ownership, Jesus also tells all of us who we are to render to God. It may be a small thing, but the Greek word used here for image, ikona, from which we get the word icon, is the same word used in the Septuagint in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where we are told that God created humanity in his own image. This is contrasted with another word, which often gets translated as, as image, eidolon, where we get the word idol. It almost would have made more sense if Matthew had used eidolon here, since the coin made certain blasphemous assertions about Caesar, proclaiming his divinity. The fact that Icona is used here instead makes me almost certain that its presence is intended to help us understand fully who it is we are to render to God, ourselves, for we are bearers of his image. So how does an American Christian in 2020 render unto God amid a contentious election season? First and foremost, by remembering that above all other considerations, 
the chief claimant on our life is the King of Heaven, Almighty God. We who have been baptized are doubly his. We bear his image, and we have been bought at the price of Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. This means that there is no power on earth to which we owe any greater allegiance, not the United States government, no political party, no populist candidate. There is no other power which guards and nurtures the church other than the Spirit of God. We must obey God and not men when men oppose God, even when those men have been allies in the past or hold authority which we honor or represent our preferred political ideology. Once we have realized that first principle, the ultimate kingship of God, then we recognize that all other allegiances to temporal powers are tainted by sin in some way. We see this most readily today in the divisions among our fellow Americans, and sadly, among our fellow Christians in America. Division arises from sin and the unwillingness of one or the other party to repent or forgive. In this country, both of the major political parties are guilty of unrepentance and unforgiveness. Worse, they exhort those who would align with them to the same unrepentance and unforgiveness. Unwavering loyalty to either taints our gospel witness. There are many voices telling you that you cannot vote for this or that candidate and be a good Christian. It may be that voting for one candidate is better for your conscience than another. But I urge you to see that both candidates are human and neither has claims on nor can they make assertions for your salvation. In this climate of variable facts and a 24-hour news cycle, which demands our attention to the spectacle, I encourage you over the next couple of weeks to seek peace in your hearts and minds. The collect for this week asks our Father to give us that, the liberty of that abundant life. Part of that liberty is freedom from anxiety over elections and political strife. Part of that abundance is realizing that in that freedom from anxiety, we can participate more fully in the mission of the kingdom of God. Ever since I was first old enough to vote, there's only been one election that I was enthusiastic about enough to tell people who my preferred candidate was. I was let down, as almost all of us are, by imperfect humans who have their own agendas. Ever since then, I do not think that I have made up my mind who to vote for until actually filling out the ballot. I do not know if that is the best practice, but I am convinced that it is more healthy for my soul than to be so committed to a candidate or any other human such that their success or failure defines how I relate to others. When I am open, open to hearing from either position, I can more easily see those who hold them as neighbor even when I disagree with them or think them in error. Even if I knew who I would vote for in a few weeks, I would not be so bold or foolhardy as to tell you who you should vote for as a Christian. That would be out of bounds and laying an undue burden on you, my friends. What I will tell you is that what matters most to God about your vote is the place of your heart when you vote. If you vote for either President Trump or former Vice President Biden because you think they would be a good leader for this nation, then I do not believe that any offense against God has been committed. 
even if ultimately your opinion of them is proven wrong. Humans can have wrong opinions that do not arise directly from their own sin. The potential for error and sinfulness comes when I vote for whomever I will because I am interested in the benefits to myself, ignoring the harm that could come or has come to others. Further error comes when my support of a candidate is such that I am willing to write off as a fool and sinner deserving of wrath anyone who does not vote for my candidate. If this last seems laughably extreme to you, then I'm glad for your innocence. There are people in the world who proclaim Jesus Christ with their lips, but who have dedicated their lives not to his kingdom, but to the politics of this nation. They have rendered to Caesar with such abundance that they have nothing to render to God. May it not be so for you. So in this election season, rendering to God requires listening to his voice over the din and clamor of those trying to appropriate his authority. In casting your vote, first seek in earnest prayer, open to the Lord's leading what his will is. Over this week, and indeed through election day, I encourage you to pray not only the collect for this Sunday, but also prayer number 31 found on page 655 of the Red Prayer Book for an election. I will pray it for us now. Almighty God, to whom we must account for all our powers and privileges, guide and direct, we pray, the minds of all those who are called to elect fit persons to serve in the United States of America. Grant that in the exercise of our choice, we may promote your glory and the welfare of this nation. This we ask for the sake of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.